Welcome back to Camden Cast, your unofficial Baltimore Orioles podcast from CamdenChat.com. It's June the 4th, 2012 in the evening as we are recording this for you. I am your host, Mark Brown. I'm Eat More SK on Camden Chat, and my podcasting partner in crime, Andrew Gibson, is along for the ride as always. And Andrew, before we started recording this podcast, you and I were both listening in on the conference call with... Orioles scouting director Gary Rasich and new draft pick, the fourth overall selection in the 2012 first year player draft, as Bud Selig would say, <laughs> Kevin Gossman from Louisiana State University. So, what was our, what did we think about that conversation? Well, what did you think about listening to that? Which was very brief, by the way. If anyone out there thinks, oh, you missed something exciting, uh, I think it was about 15 minutes and it was done. Uh, it was very short. The questions that were asked uh, weren't super interesting to me anyway. Um, Although neither just, neither Andrew or myself uh, were bold enough to actually ask yeah. a question, so we will get that. No, I, I remain shy hiding in my mother's basement here. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of super interesting information being passed, but you, I like to listen in on these things as sort of just a fly on the wall and get a sense of uh, the people who I'm dealing with. And I get to know a little bit more about uh, Gary Rasich, who uh, appears to be very uh, direct to the point, confident of what he's saying, doesn't mince words, and uh, he leaves it at that. Um, and he, of course, is still on the clock for the next two days. Right. There's another 49 uh, more draft picks for him yeah, to, right. uh, to get there. Uh, and this is his first draft as a scouting director ever. So I can imagine it's a stressful time for him. Um, and he seemed to just handle all of it really well. And I, I genuinely hope the best for him, for him and for the Orioles. And... Uh, Goose? Kevin Gossman? Yeah, his nickname is Goose, apparently. So he's Goose <laughs> Gossman, which is very, very similar to Goose Gossage, I guess. But uh, he seems uh, like a bit of a character. He's self-described as, I've always been weird. Uh, perfect. Apparently he eats four mini donuts, the little powdered mini donuts, between every inning when he's pitching that he started doing in middle school. He likes sci-fi films, so he has that in common with me. Oh, man. I like sci-fi films, too. Yeah, he's got that in common with both of us and anyone else out there who likes sci-fi films. So that's awesome. But as, as far as him being a pitcher, he's uh, he's six foot four and listed at 185 pounds. So kind of a tall and skinny dude. He's very, very lanky looking. Uh, he is said to be a power pitcher with a, I think I saw up to 97 miles an hour on his fastball. He described himself as being mainly a fastball and changeup guy, although he's been working on breaking pitches since he started his college career. He said his slider has been working for him well lately, but he admitted it's been inconsistent, and that's something he knows he needs to work on. He also maybe will try a true curve, although he just started doing that in like the last year. So, But, uh, but Rasich said that he believes that uh, Gossman will have a chance to move through the system quickly, and there will be an opportunity for him to pitch in Baltimore very soon. So whatever very soon means, I don't know. But uh, that's 
that's what that's one of the few things that the man said that he was actually pinned down on uh, saying because he was like you said he was very direct and to the point and didn't volunteer extra information a lot which is exactly what you want right you made a comment when we were trying to live blog that uh, you thought <laughs> yeah. Andy McPhail and Rasich would have gotten along very well which I think that was a good uh, good way of putting it yes yeah, uh, Andy McPhail, of course, was known as being a cards close to the vest kind of guy, almost to comical levels. But Rasich is just, you know, he doesn't say more than he needs to, and that's fine. It's starting to get exciting looking at the farm system again with uh, Goose and Bundy the Younger, Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope. Uh, you know, it's it's a mistake to pin all your hopes and dreams on these guys. As well as guys like um, Lino and Parker Bridwell, uh, you know, so, some other guys who can rise up to the system. But uh, it's it's starting to get exciting to to picture some of these guys coming up, and they're all kind of on a very similar sort of timeline, where uh, Bundy and Goose could come up at the same time. That could be a pretty nice anchor to a rotation if they can both develop the way you want them to. Of course, we remember as Orioles fans <laughs> right. in the recent past hearing the Dave Schremberly quote about the cavalry being on the way, and it was you know uh, Madison, Arietta, and Zach Britton, and you know we've seen the variable results from those guys so far. What sets like Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gossman apart from those guys? I don't know. Nothing, but hopefully they'll have a more consistent uh, and successful development path since, obviously, there's been some personnel changes in the organization since those uh, other pitchers were brought in. So, we'll see. And, of course, Mm -hmm. even, say, Brian Mattis is giving us more reason to be hopeful uh, than we were about him last year, just with his recent performance, which is also nice. So... We can dream you, of, like, Bundy and Gossman up in Baltimore and all those other guys. And maybe they will. Maybe some of them will. That'll be exciting. Did you find any other um, intrigue in in watching the draft? I don't know how much of a draftnik are you. Andrew, I'm really not a huge draftnik. And the reason for that is simply because there's so many names thrown around. And the Orioles were always just going to take one of these first round guys. And it's, it's, it wasn't worth it to me to really get invested and care in like 15 guys when only one of them is ever going to be in the Orioles organization. So now that Kevin Gossman is here, I can feel like I can get invested in his career, what he's done before, what he will hopefully do in the future. But like, you know, look at, going and looking, well, what makes Kevin Gossman different from Mark Appel or Kyle Zimmer or these other guys? I mean, I just couldn't couldn't get in and do it. Yeah, I feel very similarly. You know, um, if any listeners aren't familiar, I don't necessarily like tooting my own horn, but I do work in professional baseball, and I've been there a year, and in the past year, I've been struck at just how huge an operation the stats, the pro stats side of things is with the research and just the, the gathering. Andrew and is a part of the statistical out. industrial complex. He's yeah, he's brought true. on to destroy every traditional baseball thing you love and hold dear. <laughs> Straight so from my mother's basement. He will, he will ruin everything you've ever loved about baseball. Um, no, he won't really. But. 
it, it, it's it's amazing the amount of man hours and effort and, and critical thinking and, and creativity that goes into these things. And I'm totally blessed to have any small part in that, just as a tiny little cog down in the corner. Circus. But then I look at like the draft side of things and it's like, it, it's sort of like uh, staring into the Milky Way for the first time and, and realizing like, I have no idea about any of this. The, mil- like, the Milky Way within a few billion years will crash into the Andromeda galaxy. All right. Did you hear that in one of your sci-fi movies? Uh, I read it in the newspaper <laughs> within the last couple of I'm not familiar with, with newspapers. Oh, that's right. I guess you wouldn't be. <laughs> but it, it really is a mind-boggling, because if you think about it, 30 teams are scouting every one of these guys, and then there's multiple news outlets that try to cover every one of the 30 teams that are worth of prospects and just so many people just know a lot of stuff but as as a, as a fan of one team i really just can't get supremely into it whatever names pop up whoever the orioles sign you know great get them in there good luck hope to see you on the orioles someday making all-star teams and winning fielding bibles and uh you know the the saber metric triple crown and whatever else but well it's just and, yeah. It's just this amazing machine to me. Um, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about Mike Bordick um, not being drafted out of college and going to the Cape Cod League and scouts following him and J.P. Ricciardi, the, the Mets assistant GM, signing him. And that's like, you know, this is a guy who, who followed him through college. This was a multi-year effort. And that was just to get a guy that they, the, the Oakland Athletics, drafted him. Um, and they, they only thought this is either like a utility bench guy at the major league level, if everything goes right, or maybe he can just be like an org guy because you need, you need a lot of guys to just fill out rosters and, and bounce around and provide veteran mentorship or whatever. Right. You, you and, need your guys like Brandon Fahey to play shortstop and Bowie, uh, right, except exactly. then, except then. You know, if you're the Orioles well, in that year, you call him up and having him have him playing. He's no Alex Sintrum. No, is what what we're saying. But I mean, that's just—it's like this tiny little story. But then that story is multiplied by literally like four thousand people every year, and this is an ongoing process. It's it's completely remarkable to me. I I'm completely in awe of of this whole draft thing, and it all comes down to. You know, Bud Seeley got a podium very awkwardly saying. Andrew, t- two well, people welcome. have been drafted while we've been recording Indeed. just since we started. Yeah, and those people's their lives are totally different. They're millionaires now. It's crazy. That's totally crazy. And then some people are less millionaires than they thought, like Mark Appel. Who knows? Well, who knows what he'll end up signing? Well, yeah, you know, I was saying earlier today, I feel kind of bad for Mark Appel because he was projected in a lot of places to be the number one pick where that's 7.2 million dollars and he ended up down at nine i think or eight with pittsburgh and pittsburgh's got an outstanding collection of minor league arms now but that's a lot less money and i guess that's a first world problem a one percenter problem for sure it's still that's a lot of money that boy i i hope he didn't count his chickens yeah, that would be that would be a little bit unfortunate. But uh, well, well, one guy who probably wasn't counting his chickens was Gossman because 
you know, he probably figured he was about in this range and uh, whatever. He even said that he thought Appel would go ahead of him. He did. He Somebody asked him, and that was really kind of an awkward question to ask. Like, who do you think is better than you in here? It's like, uh, okay. But but he handled it very delicately. and um, He did. He seemed like a smart kid. Dude. Yeah. I don't want to call him kids. He's not very... that much younger than me, but. I'm very glad to have this dude in our in the Orioles organization. Yes, he definitely seemed like he was sharp, and uh, I guess sometimes you notice a difference between the, the players that have spent some time in college versus the high school uh, in the their level of articulating themselves. And he seemed like he uh, he knew what he yeah. was doing. Uh, although it's always funny when you see like a 18 year old kid who's obviously been in. Uh, gone through the Scott Boris ringer uh, a couple of years ago, Tyler Matzek, who is in the Rockies organization. Uh, I remember he got interviewed right after he was drafted on the MLB network. And he just came off like, well, I don't know if I'm going to sign because I really want a lot of money. And it's like, okay. Well, my family really appreciates the value of an education. So right. it's going to take... It's going to take a significant amount of money to buy me out of whatever. It's like, come on, like you're 18, you're going to sign. Come on, you're not fooling anybody. And good thing he did because he's not, he he hasn't developed as well as uh, his draft status no. would have warranted. So Gossman was the first draft, or the first pitcher drafted by the Orioles from Louisiana State University since Ben McDonald all the way back in 1989. So probably his whole career he will be asked about Ben McDonald. Surprisingly enough, uh, he was not asked how many alligators he wrestled. He was not. He was not. uh, He was asked if he knew Ben McDonald. Apparently McDonald is connected with the LSU baseball program still. So even like before Gossman started being connected to the Orioles organization, he was hearing about Baltimore from Ben McDonald and... Apparently, he's very much looking forward to getting to try some steam crabs. So that's, I just thought that was funny that... Uh, Man, him and me both. That, that, right. was, uh, that was what he had talked about with Ben McDonald. But nobody else well, really asked him anything else about the Orioles organization. So. I know Big Ben, I think he does maybe ESPNU stuff for NCAA games. Because I feel like him and Keith Wall were doing like the pregame, postgame, sort of the Jim Hunter... Rick Dempsey. I think that is what he does now, which is unfortunate because I thought he did a good job a couple years ago when they had the uh, several of the former players. I enjoyed that immensely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, He's not the easiest guy to understand with his accent, but I enjoyed his work a lot more than, let's say, some of the current Oriole broadcasters who, who need a little more seasoning. And he had some interesting pitch, uh, pitching insights in coming from kind of a different angle uh, than Hall of Famer Jim Palmer. Who, who never gave up a grand who slam. Who never gave up a grand that? slam. Yeah, I do believe I heard that somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, Ben McDonald is a guy who was had the really promising future but never quite lived up to the potential because of the injuries. Just... Uh, just kind of brings a different well he brought a different uh, perspective on it i i enjoyed his contributions certainly yeah yeah and uh, i'm glad he's still got work as a as a commentator and analyst and maybe he'll be back on Madison sometime in the future so one one reason we're kind of excited about the likes of Gossman and Dylan Bundy is because in 
the current last two weeks or so, the Orioles' uh, starting rotation has kind of stunk, except for Brian Mattis. Who would have thought it? And the Orioles, in fact, are three and nine since our last podcast, and really, it's all my fault. It's because I modified my win prediction up to 80 and then all of a sudden they just lost a bunch of games i should have like to remodify i should have known better no it's the cat's out of the bag andrew i can't i can't call that one back in but uh it's it's been like two quality starts out of the last nine games or something like that and both of those were brian mattis who I had really given up on after last year, so he it's really nice. looks good. He's had uh, six quality starts out of his last eight. That is totally mind blowing. And last year he had zero quality starts out of twelve. That is less mind blowing. Although at the time, mind blowing in a different way is what <laughs> it was. He he just he looks like he's back on the track he was on in 2010. Right. This Completely. is this is what we hoped we would see from Mattis last year before he got hurt. So. Right. I mean, there's a long, long way to go, and there are flaws there, but the, he's back for all intents and purposes. Knock on wood. Yeah, and he's seen he's seen several teams twice this year, and in fact, he has done better the second time than he did the first, generally. Well, his most recent outing against Tampa Bay was basically as good as as he's been. I believe that was the longest outing of his career, seven and a third innings pitched. He struck out seven, only gave up two hits. It's really this exciting stuff to see yeah. to see him moving forward. So he's like if he stays like that, he's like the one constant in the rotation. Well the, quote the, unquote the constant. We hope the stuff looked looked good. Um the command Looks like it's in serious recovery mode. The velocity is back up a little bit, and that was completely overplayed, but it's still important. Even earlier in the year, it seemed like some of his starts, he just would have that slider just like hanging up there. The fastball just would like yeah, the fastball command get up there, and he couldn't right couldn't throw a strike with it. But he's uh, he's really settled that down just since I don't know probably his first three starts, which were. Like he had after his third start, he still had a 7.98 ERA, and I was just like, "Oh, here we go with Brian Mattis again." Still playing so, the game. So long, so long, Brian Mattis. It was nice dreaming about you. But then, then since then, now he's brought his ERA down to 4.41 over the last uh, eight starts after that. Which mm-hmm. I mean, that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it's weird. Uh, probably. I guess two years ago, everybody was like, well, Chris Tillman looks like a bust. Area looks like he'll be okay, but Brian Mattis, that is where to hang your hat. And then last year, last year, Tillman's still a bust, yeah. Mattis a bust. Arietta, he looks good. He's hurt, but he looks good. And beginning of this year, Tillman's still a bust. Mattis, probably a bust. Arietta, he looks like where you want to hang your hat. And now it's it's right back to Matt. It's, it's great. Except Tillman Everybody is else still was. kind of a bust. And oh. Jake Arrieta, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we think they should do with Jake Arrieta. So what do you think they should do? Um, well, it's tricky. Uh, the traditional stats would be, I guess, like ERA. And his ERA is terrible. And oddly enough, like for all of the talk he's gotten – as being 
a main cog of the rebuilding effort and like turning the corner and being an established. Now, Andrew, you know somebody who very famously made that claim. So why, you can go ahead and lay it on me here. No, 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 no. I mean, look, uh, I told you this uh, before we started recording. I feel like a big part of my job and I think just work, being an adult in general, which is something I'm just now getting accustomed to, is uh, you just, you're wrong like 80% of the time about a variety of things. You're making mistakes and you just got to man up, accept it and move on. And that happens to, it seems like it happens to everybody. So it's, you know, it happens. Um, I've been dead wrong about so many, so many different things. There's no sense laying it thick on you. You'll just lay it thick on me. It's true. We've both had our things we were very wrong about. Uh, in fact, really, any time as a blogger you have a knee-jerk reaction, you're wrong. You're, just, yes. you're guaranteed For to be example. wrong. Like, For example. I was, I was actually thinking about this within the last couple of weeks, because every time Pedro Strope comes on to pitch, I just remember there was one game, like last year, Mike Gonzalez, there was that extra inning game against the Yankees, and he like hit somebody in the head and got ejected in the 15th inning after he'd already given up like three runs. So, so Jeremy Guthrie had to come in and pitch. Yep. And I was just really uh, upset with Gonzalez about that. And I was writing in the, uh, in the post-game thread about how Mike Gonzalez should be designated for assignment immediately. And of course, mad as I was at Mike Gonzalez then, he stabilized and turned into a pitcher that was worth enough that the Rangers gave us Pedro Strope for Mike Gonzalez. So, And even complaining about the Gonzalez signing in the first place, and I was at the forefront of that because we lost a draft pick. And when the reality is that whoever the Orioles selected in the second round, probably not as good as Pedro Strope anyway. It, it well, turns since out Pedro that, Strope's a major leaguer, yeah. I mean, already they've beaten those odds. So, you know, it, every time you try and make like a definitive prediction, like, oh, Brian Mathis, is, he's back, like some idiot said like two minutes ago. Yeah, they're really a lot I, of idiots. Uh, I, I, I'm not pointing fingers, but somebody's. Um, you know, this is, baseball is just, it's a much longer timeline. Everybody wants to jump in and say like, oh, this team won this trade, this player's back, this player's junk, we should DFA this guy, this was a terrible signing, and... You just you can never say any of those things until it's been like three years. I, uh, it's a lesson I I say now and tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and tweet something stupid because I read some stupid quote and feel angry and uh, I mean such is life. So so now that we've completely invalidated uh, our uh, any kind of expertise since we know that we're always going to be wrong, we can well the wise move on. Man is the one who realizes he's not wise, right? Yeah, that's what we could tell ourselves anyway, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully our listeners will agree. But some other things that have been afflicting the Orioles this year is the, the injury bug is finally biting them a bit with... Of course, Reimold's been out for a bit longer, and recently we had Nick Markakis with the broken Hammett bone. And uh, that was that's that's been something that I found interesting because it seemed like... Every time I've seen another player with a Hammett bone break, the just default recovery time is six to eight weeks. And the Orioles immediately, as soon as they set out Marcakis broken Hammett bone, they were like, he'll be back in three to four weeks. It's like, oh, I want, like, I just, it was curious what it is about uh, 
Nick Markakis that they think, well, he's going to have this extra special recovery time on that. No, I actually have a theory about this. And tell me, please, tell me as soon as I'm being stupid. Neither Andrew or I have a medical doctorate degree. so Correct. We, we and it. I don't even like the show House. So no, I never liked House either. Right, so we're we're woefully underqualified. Didn't watch Grey's Anatomy. Didn't watch ER. No, no, I, I was never in. I just General watched Hospital. Scrubs. Never watched that Scrubs either. Was my my medical show choice. Um, Nick Markakis, I, because the team is playing so well right now, it's almost like um, the Orioles don't want to send a message of of doom and gloom to let's say the type of fan base that could walk up and, and buy 11,000 tickets for a, a Friday evening game. Paying $3 extra because they bought it the day of gaming. Right. Uh, so if you spin this as, oh, he'll be out three to four weeks instead of six to eight weeks or, or whatever the, the exact timeline is supposed to be or, or is more reasonable. That makes it sound like it, it, it's downplaying the whole thing, and it's only downplaying it for the fan base, really, because that information doesn't affect anybody else. Right. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and the team will move on, and hopefully they don't completely fall apart without Nick Markakis. I mean, I guess that's my working theory. Does that sound crazy? It sounds a little crazy when I say that out loud. It's, it's certainly a very uh, bottom-line financial motive to ascribe to the team, but I think that's probably there more than is ever talked about in the media anyway. So it just for any baseball team, really, everybody, you know, they're all out there to make money. So now I looked into some other players who have broken their hammock bones. Um, additionally, uh, we should mention Scott Beer and Luis Exposito. Uh, you can't spell expose without ex or exposito without expose. Um, they both also broke their hammock bones. So that's sort of like a mini uh, epidemic. It's kind of like a few years ago. It seemed like everybody had a strained oblique. And uh, apparently this year it's the broken hammock bone that's the Now, uh, the in case anybody out there doesn't know, uh, I don't know even how much you and I know combined. Uh, the hammock bone is in the wrist. It, it's part of... Um, like there's a bunch of really tiny bones in there that work together to give your wrist that huge range of motion. But the hammock bone is not completely necessary, I guess, to human survival or wrist movement, such as it were. So they just take it out when it breaks and throw it away, I guess. Or maybe they put it in a little uh, cup and you can put it on your mantle, like Jake Arietta's ping pong size ball bone chip. Ping pong ball size bone chip. Yes, the yeah. the the really gross looking picture. Anyway, um, but it does have some mixed results for hitters, uh, even after they come back from it, in terms of uh, just getting their swing back and their power back. Um, my favorite recent example is uh, Kung Fu Panda. Excuse me, Kung Fu Panda. Pablo Sandoval, the Giants' third baseman, broke his right hammock bone last year and was out. And then he came back and had a really good season. I mean, he wasn't affected by it at all. Because one of the things about that injury that the 
the quote unquote they seem to quote unquote know is that one of the uh, the side effects of it is that even when you're back you kind of have saft power in your swing as a result of that injury which yeah like you said it really did not afflict uh Pablo Sandoval at all mm-hmm. in that way um he he came back he had a really good season uh his first two months after the surgery he OPS over 800 so uh, who who the heck knows if he would have done a lot better without it? Um, he broke his other hammock bone this year, uh, just recently, so so he's out right now, um, and now he doesn't have any left. So I guess he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. Troy Tulowitzki broke his in 2010. He came back and OPS over 900 without his hammock bone. Uh, Dustin Pedroia broke his at the end of 2007 and played through it, through the playoffs, won the World Series. Um, he didn't have too many negative effects. Uh, Andrew, I'm very back. close to hanging up on you and just ending I'm this sorry. podcast right here. This, this is way too much Dustin Pedroia praise that I'm comfortable with. He's just such a good gamer, gritty player. He reminds me of all sorts of other white, gritty, gamer, good players. Pardon um, me while I go vomit. He came back after off-season surgery and won the MVP in 2008, I think. I know he won an MVP in there somewhere. Like him or hate him, that's a pretty remarkable story. And I don't follow the Red Sox that closely, so maybe my timeline is wrong. Um, so there are success stories with it. Um, it seems like uh, modern medicine is, is playing it a lot better uh, I know Jose Canseco broke his back in the day, and he lost like four months to a broken hammock bone. So obviously we're getting better as a race at dealing with wrist injuries. At dealing um, with broken hammock bones because they just get yanked right out, basically. Yeah, so... It's apparently uh, like your appendix uh, stopping your working. Spleen, yeah. I guess, yeah. It just um, uh, goes wrong, and it's out of there. And you so, go on with life. Yeah, so... Uh, I guess what's in store for Nick Markakis when he gets back in two to eight weeks? <laughs> Who knows? Is is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, we can hope he follows the uh, the recovery track of all those guys we named who didn't really have any huge setbacks from a from a hammock bone because otherwise he was having a really good year. Yeah, it's really easy to just look at his contract and say. He's not worth that contract. And he's not worth that contract. But he was having a really good year for a first-place ball club. He was on the way to maybe being kind of worth the $12 million salary this year. And I was as surprised by it as anyone because, like, well, like all of Camden Chat really has been calling him noodles lately and just very down on him. But, uh, in fact, he had, the as we talked about, I think the last time, he had the highest isolated slugging, slugging minus batting average uh, in his in his career up until he broke his hammer bone. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing. If he comes back and his ISO goes down, people are automatically going to say hammer bone injury. But that's not necessarily true. Right. Because, you know, maybe he just can't hit for that much isolated power, and it was going to come down anyway. Right. So it's really hard to do. Like, I just went through a really quick, pointless exercise of going through a couple players who fought through it. But... It's really, really hard to isolate. This was caused by this injury, and this was caused by 
things like regression to the mean or whatever else. Which has a lot to do with our earlier discussion about how, as as a baseball commentator, you're just going to be wrong, and that's life. Yeah. Right. So speaking of things we were wrong about, uh, one guy who's coming back from the injury bug is Ryan Roberts, and now that he's on his rehab assignment, and I don't think either one of us really ever expected him to uh, be on a baseball field as a player again, and... So when he finally started his rehab, it seemed like, well, now he's just going to go out and he's not really going to be able to play anymore, but he's gotten some extra base hits in Bowie, he's taken some walks in Bowie, and, you know, Brian Roberts just might be able to be a Major League Baseball player again. And that, oh, he's coming back. Yeah, that's great. It's great. <laughs> it's remarkable. It is, it is great uh, because... Andrew, I know you've talked in the past about how you feel like we're in the Brian Roberts era of the Orioles, so it would have been really unfortunate if he wasn't even able to play in his own era. But more than just that, he can hopefully help stabilize the lineup a little bit because uh, maybe with him playing second base, then Robert Andino can play third base with some vague level of confidence, and then we don't have to have you know Wilson Betamit there or Mark Reynolds there or... Steve Tolleson there. Maybe, you know, maybe the infield starts looking okay again. And that would be interesting. If that well, there's a, there's a long way to go between playing in double-A and playing an acceptable starting second base in the AL East. That's for sure. And that's really all I have to say on the subject. I'm, I could not be happier to see not even Brian Roberts playing baseball again, although... I think anybody who's who's been a fan through the past, let's say seven years, eight years, uh, has a special affinity for Brian Roberts. Because this is this is totally the Brian Roberts era of Baltimore baseball, uh, for better or worse. Um, and I just I don't know what I would have thought or or done with myself if he couldn't recover just health-wise right even even as being like a you know functioning somewhat normally as a human being yeah so just it is really just exciting to see that he's he's on the way back on the mend a little bit and you know i think he's been uh on the rehab assignment for about two weeks now almost two weeks maybe no setbacks yet hopefully cross our fingers it stays that way and uh he has also finally been transferred to the 60-day disabled list. <laughs> Andrew. Retroactive to Andrew, March 27th. I, I almost thought they were doing that just to mess around with me because for, for, for really the full 60 days that he wasn't on the 60-day disabled list, I was like, well, why haven't they just put him on the 60-day disabled list? And then it was, I swear it was like day 60. They put him on the 60-day deal. And, it's, and now he's like, you know, his, his, his return is insight. And that's finally when they put him on the 60-day DL. Well, you know, uh, they didn't really need to put him on the 60-day DL until just now. Um, uh, it didn't hurt them at all to do it, but they didn't lose any players that they wanted to hang on to because... No, nobody that mattered got really designated for assignment. And even several people who did get designated for assignment just passed through waivers, and they're still in Norfolk anyway, like Brad Bergeson. Right, exactly. Um I think Matt Antonelli was the only casualty. He is now playing for the Empire State Yankees, the barnstorming AAA team. And it's kind of like, you know, a big deal was made about him being signed over the winter, and that was silly. That was another another thing. That was silly. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's cool to see him on his way back, and it's just it's it's weird. So I don't think they have a specific day in sight for when his first game would be, but I believe he's only allowed 20, I don't know if it's 20 days or 20 games uh, on a minor league rehab assignment. So uh, presumably if he gets through without any further setbacks when that 20-day slash game period runs out, then uh, he'll be back up in Baltimore. Or maybe if they're on the road, then he'll be whatever city. I would be surprised if... He doesn't spend the full rehab time. I'm sure. Rehab. I'm sure he's going to yeah. go whatever the full time is, just because. Just because sure. it's been like two years since he's really played. Because even like he played at the beginning of last season, but he had another concussion he was dealing with, and then like the back. Yeah, he had stuff, neck and so. back stuff that was uh, making him not really an effective player even before the second concussion. So, so we we need Brian to be back because the AL East is turning out to be, at least at this point in time, just a ridiculous division beyond really what we even thought. Because with even teams like the Orioles being six games above 500, interesting fact, which you may be aware of yourself, between the American League East and the National League East, there is no team with a below 500 record right now. In both the Eastern divisions and both leagues, every team is 500 or better. Now there are teams with uh, sub 500 Pythagorean records uh, because they have allowed more runs than they have scored. The Orioles themselves have allowed exactly as many runs as they have scored, which is not a good sign going forward. No, because it means they're um, they're kind of in their talent level, they're due to fall back. Which well, we, we knew know, that deep in our hearts anyway. And it's not the be all end all because you can have one game that skews it really, really massively. Like playing uh, Texas, which point. is basically what right. happened to the Orioles. Or Texas playing Seattle, where they got outscored by eighteen runs. And still they have a plus eighty differential right now, Texas does. Right. But you know the Orioles are at plus zero and they are Eight games over 500? They are six. They are 30 six and 24. Teams. Forgot to carry the two. Um, so, you know, things have to get better. Uh, and definitely everybody wanted to write off the Red Sox. And as we talked about last time, they they arose from the lake, unkilled completely, zombie-ish strength. Right. The skin has that pallid Super color, rich. and they're clenching... A baseball bat right now. Last time we said it was like Clay Buckholz, but I think this time maybe it's Kevin Euclid's, uh with his beard because he already looks like he works on a ship anyway. And he's it's like, you know, that one picture where he's in the hoodie. He's wearing the hoodie with the Red Sox on it and just the water is dripping off and he's just stiffly stalking towards. I don't know who's his who's his victim here. Somebody's just like fishing on the pier or something like that. And uh, you know you're you're running to get your gun, your shotgun, but it wasn't loaded. You got to find the shells. You're fumbling with the shells. You drop a shell in the water, and then he's there, and you're done. That's it. That's the Red Sox. They're they're storming back. Although for a while it looked like maybe they would be unable to get over that 500 level because uh, I think they lost like five straight games where they had a chance to go above 500 as our, our, our uh, over-the-monster colleagues were very upset about. But they finally made it over, and, uh, well, the Orioles are playing them next, so we'll find out if we can send them back into the depths or if they're going to, uh, you know, 
the bloody handprint on the driver's side window, and then they punch through the glass and then just like strangle us. Well, it's not a good matchup because nobody scores as much runs outside of Texas in the American League as the Red Sox. They score 5.2 runs a game. And right now, it seems like nobody is more willing to give up runs than the Baltimore Orioles. Um, so It's bad, bad combo. It's bad timing. Of course, uh, as Earl Weaver would say, momentum is your next day's starting pitcher, and that's Jason Hamill. Who and he's been great, except so. since that knee thing, he hasn't really made it through. Like, well, no, he had he had two six inning starts that were good, but there were a couple where he couldn't get out of the sixth, and that was like exactly where he fell apart. So we'll see if his knee is better. Hopefully, it is. After Hamill. Let's see. After Hamill, the mat- and Hamill's pitching against John Lester, who is not having a John Lester kind of year, really. He's He's got a 479 ERA so far. Not great. But then again, he's just got some kind of freakish power where he doesn't lose to the Orioles, so they'll have to overcome that. <laughs> it's called being left-handed. Yeah. The next the next day's matchup is Wei Yin Chen versus Josh Beckett. Chen... We hope the league hasn't caught up to him, but his last couple starts, well, two of his last three starts have been not so good. And Disappointing. Who knows why. Yeah. Of course, Beckett is not doing great this year, but he's not doing terrible either. He's got a 426 ERA so far. Uh, I don't know if he's continuing to eat fried chicken and beer in the clubhouse on off days. Hey, his off day is his off day. He has been going golfing, and that was a big deal when his shoulder was hurting, but who really gives a crap? Only the Boston media, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the game after that is Ryan Mattis versus Clay Buckholtz. And, well, I like our chances in that one. Well, Buckholtz has been the Chris Tillman of the Red Sox, right? Yeah, he has. Where once upon a time, he was really good. Although his last two games, he went seven innings against the Rays and went only gave up two runs. And then he went eight innings against the Blue Jays and only gave up two runs. Both, well, see, both of which were solo though. home runs. Here's the thing about all that, and this goes back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the season. It's two games. Right. Anybody can have two good games. Anybody can have a week's worth of good games. The good pitchers are the ones who can have a season's worth of good games. And Clay Buckholtz has not had a season's worth of even mediocre games. He's been terrible. Although if Buckholtz faces a lineup that consists of guys like Andy Chavez and Robert Andino at the top of the lineup and... Uh... You know, yeah. Steve Pearson, whoever the heck else at the bottom of the lineup. Well, yeah, that would that would explain a lot. That will be the thing if Brian Roberts can come back and actually play well, which is yet to be seen. That that will by far be the greatest benefit is getting the bad on base percentage guys out of the top of the lineup. For some reason, the Orioles on-base percentage rankings have their number one spot at the bottom, which makes no sense. They're, they're putting their worst hitters in the number one spot. Well, when Andy Chavez keeps batting leadoff when he's healthy, it's like, uh, I mean, he just looks like a guy. Every time he swings his bat, I'm like, well, there's a guy who just looks like he has a 341 OPS. And, well, he should be a lot better than what he's been. So... There's some of that, you know, negative fluctuation or, or bad luck or injuries. 
because he's been hurt too. He has been hurt as well. But like, I mean, even at his best, come on, that's not the guy you want up there. Not even close. So yesterday's game was really the just the telling thing because like Robert Andino led off and he worked a full pitch or full count before he struck out, which is like, yeah, yeah, okay, good job working the count. Then Andy comes up, first pitch, ground out. Okay, good job. No, not really. Well, Robert Andino is not the guy you want up there. No, no, nobody's the guy you want up there right now, really. But somebody has to. Well, right, and I mean that's kind of the thing with Marquez out, and the lineup was already built to be uh, uh, our our one-time podcast guest, John Bernthal, or Bernard. John Bernard, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, he he's dubbed it Adam Jones and the errors. Because you wait for Adam Jones, who's still on fire. Uh, I I actually charted it out. Uh, the Orioles' overall hitting line, eh, it's dipped power-wise, but stayed relatively stable over the last 12 games, even though their run production has actually dipped. Adam Jones is on fire this past week, even with the wrist injury. Um, he, in the last 12 games, is batting uh, 341 with a 400 on base and 568 slugging. So, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, that's almost 1,000 on uh, OPS. And he's slugging 602 on the season still as well. Right. Yeah. So, so he's not cooling down, and then you wait for the other team to make mistakes is the errors part of it. Um, or they're the guys getting not... errors is, is actually what I thought was what's going on there well yeah there is a little bit of that too and we've talked about that at length um there you just yeah they they have to find better answers defensively at at least three positions and until they do i mean it's going to be an errors offense for the other team too yeah but so the next two series we got the red sox and then the phillies not really the teams you probably want to have to figure things out against but uh well you can't always get what you want. That's true. So and, hey, maybe they'll turn it around. Yeah, they certainly are not as bad as the uh, three and nine they've been over the last twelve games. No, not even close. They're way better than that. But they need to. They do need to turn it around because, as as I said in the last podcast, it really just feels like an eight-game losing streak is around every corner. And if they just go into one of those right now, suddenly they'll be below five hundred, and then. And it won't feel so good anymore. Because at least in the meantime, you can be like, well, you know, they're still over 500. But if suddenly they're not, then it's just like, ah, well, here we go again. So win, win some games against the Red Sox, please. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Phillies. That'd be nice. And whoever is after that. Actually, the Pirates are after that. And uh, we'll, probably, <laughs> we'll probably have a podcast before they play the Pirates. So we don't need to worry about the Pirates too much at this point in time. So, Andrew, any final thought on the Orioles or anything? Well, actually, Mark, you... You may have done this un- unwittingly, but you dodged asking what you would do with Jake Arrieta oh, right now. Oh, well, Andrew, I think he's got... And I do not forget. I think he's got to figure it out at the major league level. I don't see a point in talking about, well, Demotum. I think uh, I think he needs to work with the major league staff and figure out what's wrong, and hopefully they can help fix him. And, uh, you know, if not, I think they need to... He's. I mean, we've we'd heard in the past, well... They need to play so-and-so so the Orioles can figure out what they've got. And, you know, they're at that point with Arietta really. 
And if he never turns it around this year, then you know we start to think, well, maybe he's the next Daniel Cabrera or something. But as long as there's some hope there, I don't know that he can really gain anything in AAA. And they just, you know, they he needs to take his lumps, and maybe the team does. And uh, it's not like he's the one thing holding them back right now. So that's true. I I agree very much. Um, his underlying peripheral stats are still good. The only thing that's spiked during this this time of struggle is the uh, the dreaded batting average on balls in play, and uh, sometimes that happens. But he's still striking out guys. He's still not walking guys. He's he's still a good pitcher under there, and uh, he can work through maybe find his command a little bit more. Uh, it's just a thing he's got to work through. Guys like um, Steve Molesky have been talking about how. Um, when he gets with runners on base is when his command kind of falls apart. So it sounds like they need to work on him pitching from the stretch. And or work on not getting any runners on base. Or work on not getting runners on base, yeah. although... <laughs> that might be a little... Maybe, ridiculous. yeah. <laughs> Just a little. Sometimes it won't even be his fault, although sometimes it is. Cause, wow, right, right. You right. know, get an 0-2 count, and then he just bounces a bunch of curveballs that are so far away that... Not eat, well, maybe Vlad Guerrero would swing at him, but nobody else would. Look, I mean, the command has always been an issue. Even when he was pitching well, the command was an issue. The command's going to be an issue. That's just the pitcher he's going to be. He can still be very, very successful. Lots of pitchers with bad command have found sustained success. And he's just got to figure out what he needs to do to, to get himself in that position. And I have no idea what that is. No, we, we certainly are not professionals, and we don't know what that thing is. But I don't think he has as much chance of figuring that out against lesser competition, say, on the Norfolk Tides. I think, right. you know, I he's agree. he's I just got to test his stuff against the major league hitters at this point. Right. And, you know, hopefully it'll click, and he'll find his destiny as probably, what, a league average starter? Which you know, yeah, you need a league average, yeah. you need league average starters to go with your good starters, which hopefully are working their way up through the system. We're turning into good starters like Brian Mattis, or coming back healthy like Zach Britton, who we didn't talk about at all really, but he's I think supposed to make one more rehab start and then come back. I don't know. Yeah, he could be up in time for our next podcast. He might be. That'd be exciting. Because I like Zach Britton a lot too. I think everybody likes Zach Britton a lot. Yeah, what's not to like? So, so yeah. Now that you've now that you've pinned me down on Jake Arrieta, do you have mm-hmm. any final thoughts there, Andrew? No, I did. Uh, I saw an amusing tweet since we were talking about the draft. So I, I will I'll leave you guys with this. Uh, Brandon McCarthy, the Athletics pitcher, who's a great Twitter follow if you are into following professional athletes. I dare say he's really the only baseball player worth following. One of the mm-hmm. only ones. Yeah, he. It's pretty. Pretty much. He's the best of the bunch. To be sure. I, I, I agree. Um, he tweeted earlier, draft comps. Do it by race. And if that doesn't work, well, just do it anyway. Because if you're a black outfielder, you are going to turn into Torrey Hunter or Eric Davis or Adam Jones. If you are a Latino middle infielder, you're going to turn into Alex Rodriguez or Manny Machado. Heaven forbid if you are a... Uh, half white half black middle infielder you will always be compared to Derek Jeter and if you're and a scrappy white guy you're going to be David Eckstein fair. I guess yeah. I don't know yeah always always or Dustin Pedroia yeah 
He's a real grinder. So that is my final thought for the evening. I guess I need to figure out if I have a final thought. Well, the final <laughs> thought is I've expected the bullpen to start sucking by now, and they haven't, and Not it's yet. interesting to me. Jim Johnson just won uh, Relief Pitcher of the Month for May. Some silly award that had some fancy name that I don't remember. I don't remember what it was either. It's he not, was, he's not been really, really good. It's Bell's Relief Award anymore. It's something, some other thing. So like the fireman? I don't know. But the, don't. the Orioles have the best bullpen ERA in baseball, 2.37. Although, as you pointed out to me, they have the worst uh, inherited runners scoring rate. So I guess it helps, uh, <laughs> yeah. it helps your, your bullpen ERA. I'm sorry. Apparently the Reds have passed them. They have a 2.36 ERA, but that's well, big, so it doesn't count. So they face pinch hitters all the time. So yeah, and uh, it, it helps your ERA if you're letting other guys run or score, of course. But uh, you know, there's a lot of clean innings in there too, because maybe especially the, sixth, in, the sixth inning, and then the seventh, eighth, ninth. This you know the bullpen's gotta do its own thing. Jim Johnson is really being superlative. You can't. I play. am uh, every, every year. That the Orioles have a good closer, like uh, I know Randy Myers and B.J. Ryan, definitely B.J. Ryan, and now Jim Johnson have all fallen into this this thing with me where I'm just totally enamored of them. I don't know why. I just I, Jim Johnson might be my favorite Oriole. Right Zero point seven eight ERA. He's pitched in twenty three games, twenty three innings. He just seems totally in control when he goes out there. There's just no no doubt at all when he's pitching that he's going to be good. Yeah, that's exactly right. And hopefully it stays that way because I swear I look at these guys and I think some of them are due to slip back. But even if they slip back a bit, it should still be an above-average bullpen. And I have said that before and I will stand by that, which probably means that tomorrow's game will feature a spectacular bullpen meltdown <laughs> uh, and perhaps the, the two games after that. So, well, now so that you've said that, you've jinxed that, so that won't happen. Andrew, this stuff is really complicated. I think we're going to have to... But now to, that uh, I've said I that... I think we might have to face the reality that nothing we say, we say matters at all, which really isn't as fun. So. No, that's true. It's just, I don't know. Things are still fun, even without without the silly superstitions. But I think superstitions are fun. I just maybe get a little too into fine. sometimes. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So we've run about out of time for tonight, and we've shared our final thoughts, and that's that. So you should follow us on Twitter. I am at EatMoreSK, E-S-S-K-A-Y, like the hot dogs. Andrew is at Gibson. Andrew, we occasionally say funny things, either to one another or just in general. Interesting things, etc., etc. We're working on our banter. We are working on it. It's just banter, and uh, it's just talking is what it is. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for Camden Cast. Look forward, subscribe. You'll get automatic updates, or you can always find the latest on camdenchat.com, occasionally along with things like tables of contents and such. So that's all we've got for tonight. I am Mark Brown. I'm here with Andrew Gibson. We're bringing you Camden Cast, and we are out.